Welcome to CAMS Politics, Episode 2. I'm Trevor Down, and this is our monthly dive into the murky waters and occasional sunlit uplands of our local councils. What are they up to now? In the next hour, an extraordinary story featuring accusations of bullying, guns, and a clandestine meeting with a council official in a Fenland lay-by. We'll also have more on the Mill Road consultation. Do they really care what you think? We'll hear from the local Trades Council on what unions are thinking about and we'll find out why a South Cam's parish council has found itself featured on YouTube. And more than any of that, we have our analyst and expert, Phil Rogers. How are you, Phil? I'm pretty good, Trevor. Good. What adventures have you been having since we last met? I hear you had a, an issue getting into the council chamber. Yes, I did have a little bit of excitement on <laughs> Thursday night last week. So um, I was kind of on my way to the pub to meet some people for seven o'clock. And, and like you do, I thought, well, I've got about 45 minutes. So let's pop into the council chamber and, and, and see what's going on. And we are back to in-person council meetings now, but they're still pretty cautious. You can go and observe as a member of the public, but they do want ID on the door, which I wasn't, I don't think this is the right thing for members of the public trying to see what our elected representatives are up to. So I, I did put a little tweet out about that. But um, I, I was quite amused that they accepted my university library card as, as valid <laughs> ID. So uh, there we go. Because, I mean, it's a, it's a small point, obviously. But some people, I think, don't know that you can just go to council meetings, not just the city council, but all councils. I mean, there are protocols you have to abide by, but they are open, aren't they? Yes, that's right. In normal times, certainly, you know, COVID apart, uh, there is actually a right enshrined in law to observe our elected representatives at work, and and, and quite right too. So uh, I I think if uh, Cambridge City Council could stop asking people for ID on the door, that would be good. More from Phil throughout the programme, and we have music too. This seems to have taken on a new resonance in the past few days. The Beatles, of course, and back in the USSR. It's amazing to think, isn't it, that that came out just a few weeks after Russian tanks had rolled into Prague. And we thought, well, we'll never see anything like that again in our lifetimes. Anyway, let's turn our attention to local matters and to one of the most extraordinary local scandals to come out in recent years. This is what everyone's calling Farmgate. It took down Cams County Council's deputy leader amidst accusations of toxic behaviour towards officials, one of whom suffered serious mental issues, and it was exposed by the intrepid John Elworthy of Cams Times. Online, on digital and on FM. This is... Cambridge 105 Radio. John, I just want to ask you first of all, I think a lot of people are confused about why the County Council operates this portfolio of farm property. Is this a common thing? Right across the country, there's quite a few County Councils that run run a farm's estate. Norfolk runs one and Cambridgeshire has one of the largest. It's a good investment. They're not making any more land. You are in a position where you can acquire the land, being a County Council. And they've just carried on with them. So let's establish what we mean when we talk about this particular property. This is Manor Farm Girton. It's nine acres of pastoral land, some farm buildings and a comparatively undistinguished three-bedroom property. Why did 
then councillor hickford wanted what was he intending to do with it do we yes, know yes we do know very we know exactly what he was intending to do with it he had applied for the tenancy of it because a he needed somewhere to live his passion were dogs and he saw this as an opportunity to run a business we call it a doggy daycare center that's effectively what it's been shortened to and what better place you're not going to get anywhere freehold in 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 the cambridgeshire area uh, for much short what probably half a million to three quarters of a million to get any decent piece of property and this was a, a low stake entry into being able to set up a business doing what he liked to do and did people notice that there was a potential at least conflict of interest here in that he was the deputy leader of the county council and here he was applying for a tenancy on one of their properties. Well, he, did, he, he the report makes it clear that he, he sniffed around the farms estate management team, said things like, what sort of rent do you think I should offer to get this particular property? And what was really interesting was when his application went in, it was one of the few non-farming type of applications. I'm going to interrupt you, John, and, and, and just ask you to clarify this thing. So Hickford puts in for the tenancy and he puts a business plan forward, which they think is pretty good, and they give this to him. How do we get from there to a position where he's accused of and now been found guilty of bullying and harassing officials? What was it that happened that caused this not to go through as smoothly as he would have wanted? Well, you know, we've got three days. I've got several hundred pages of the report. That I, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I mean, yeah, let me be honest with you. The report that I've been dipping into and writing about the last week or so is based on the findings of the lawyer, Mr. Gooden, who went off and did a 177-page study on behalf of the Constitution and Ethics Committee. So you need to differentiate between the Audit Committee, who had a report in progress, the Mazars report that picked up from the Audit Committee's work, and then the Constitution and Ethics Committee that picked up the behaviour of Councillor Hickford. And you say in your article, John, that there was a whistleblower that alerted you to some of what was going on. Now, I don't expect you to name him or her, but what was their interest in telling you They'd been bullied by the wretched man. The whistleblower was cajoled and told me of, of times when Mr Hickford would come in and this was when he was trying to acquire the tenancy and when they'd you know almost given him the tenancy. Why isn't this happening? Why isn't that happening? And the bullying of that particular officer extended to a more junior member of staff who was left in tears. And the whistleblower only came to me after they had left the council and felt comfortable that I would actually begin to do something about it. Let's just listen to this clip. In fact, a couple of clips from Jonathan Gooden at the announcement of of the report a few days ago. We consider that in plain terms, Mr Hickford did misuse his position as a councillor in order to seek a preferential treatment for himself in relation to Manor Farm. And what I hope is brought out by the evidence provided by officers is a pattern of bullying and disrespect. Sometimes it's not just the words used, it's very much the body language. Officer B said that they had had cause to remove from their reach their shotguns for fear of what effect the conduct might have on their mental well-being. Clearly there's a lot of pressure here being put on 
officers who are just doing their oh, job, doing the due diligence. I, I mean, Mr Goodin himself said in his 18 years of doing this t- sort of work, he basically had never seen anything like that. But what we don't see in his report are the internal emails and the crisscrossing of emails and, and the complaints that were being made and put forward to various people, senior officers, who simply sat on the complaints of the bullying and the pressure that was being applied to members of their own council. It went to the very top. And I saw a lot of those e- emails when I was fortunate enough to be given a copy of the original Farmgate report. What happened was I was rung up by somebody who'd got a copy. I was invited to go to a lay-by in the Fens. And I don't know who the person was, but I was to be there at a certain time. I was to get out of my car and wait. They drove up. I got into the car. No words were said except for, that's the report. You've got 30 minutes. Left up, come back. So I had 30 minutes to read what was 450-odd pages or so. So that's your version of Deep yeah. Throat. And so I, I skipped read it. I switched on my phone and I managed to get 40 minutes. And literally the bloke, well, the person came back to the car, got in the car, took it back from me and drove off. And I don't know who it was to this day. That was very fundamental to the audit report, which the council still will not publish. Let's talk about that then. What motive do you believe the Conservative Party had and what motive do you think the head of the officers had to try to sit on this? Well, I think the question should be, if you read the report, which has been well publicised now, of the Mr Gooden report, which has just come out, he talks about the Chief Internal Auditor because what happened there was, towards the end of 2020, the Chief Internal Auditor was under so much internal pressure. Now, this is a senior, experienced officer, but his mental health was suffering. It's on the record. He went to the doctor and he, he was prescribed different tablets and stuff and all the rest of it, and basically was told... For your health, Mr Wilkinson, you need to step away from this. So in December of 2020, Wilkinson put his hands up and said, look, Madam Chief Executive, Julian Beasley, I cannot complete this report. I'm not well enough to do it. He was signed off sick. He left. But the question is why they allowed it to continue for so long, why somebody didn't pull the plug. And it's absolutely clear in this report that right the way through, even before Mr Hickford was applying for the tenancy, he was attending farms tenancy meetings. There's a picture of him at one in March in Cambridgeshire. And that's where he had a, it's referred to in the report, there was an incident of bullying with one of the officers there where he was trying to pursue his agenda of taking it over. And even when he did get the tenancy of it, he wanted this big expansion done to the house. He wanted the council to pay for a load of the improvements, stuff that they'd never normally done for a normal tenant. And there's about 150 tenants of the county council. So all the other tenants, you know, he could bypass all of them because he had a hotline And as it was said in the report, he had the advantage because not every tenant could simply ring up the deputy chief executive. Everybody would uh, would understand that, John. I think I think we get that, that there was bad behaviour on the part of this individual. uh, And he's he's named and shamed in this report. He then subsequently resigned. Is that because he saw the way this was going? He saw the findings of the Maysdale's report and Councillor Steve Count, who was then the leader, simply accepted his apology. So when we hear the word gate affixed to anything, we think of Watergate, which makes us think of a cover-up, not just a scandal. So do you think that uh, Steve Count or anyone else has been responsible for some kind of cover-up? And if so, what should they be doing about that now? Well, Steve Count 
tried to cover it up because he then, when it came out, then said Councillor Hickford was too busy doing other things. He then went, was promoted in a sense, to chairman, amongst other things, of the Greater Cambridge Partnership. And so there was no recognition by Councillor Cowan that what his deputy was doing was wrong. And he's now the leader of the opposition. He's got to to resign. He's got to, in your view. No, 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 it's not my view. I I, I don't speak for... Oh, I speak for myself, I speak on behalf of the paper, but I speak on behalf of the majority of people um, in, in Cambridgeshire who are absolutely shocked and outraged by what's happened. John, I'm going to leave it there. I think you've uh, done a fantastic job of investigative journalism here, and I think everybody uh, listening to this would join me in thanking you for not letting this story lie. And who knows, there may be more of it. I, I would... Uh, encourage everybody to go to camstimes.co.uk where they'll find you and your regular writings. I'm sure you'll get the starring role in the film All the Councillors <laughs> Men, which is about uh, <laughs> to come out soon. I haven't got a song, by the way, called Manor Farm, but I have got Maggie's Farm. Here's Bob Dylan. I ain't gonna work on Maggie's Farm no more. That's Bob Dylan's version of Maggie's Farm. It's Cam's Politics with Trevor Dan and Phil Rogers. And what did you make of John Elworthy and Farmgate, Phil? Well, it really is a pretty extraordinary story. And uh, you've got to admire the the tenacity with which uh, John Elworthy has pursued this over the last months and and years, I think. And, um, you know, the sort of secret meeting in the lay-by. That was great. That was was kind of straight out of Watergate almost. Uh, But, but, you know, it is a serious matter and people have been really quite badly affected by this. And there are basically, I think, two points about what happened. First of all, there's an obvious conflict of interest that if somebody is responsible for county farms policy at the county council and is also a farm tenant, then that's a clear conflict of interest. And clearly people were aware of that and did take some steps. But uh, I I don't think, as, as the report says, that they were nearly enough. But even more serious than that was the appalling bullying behavior that was was documented in the report and and clearly what happened had quite severe mental health impacts on on mm. you've got to say the victims of of, of Roger Hickford's behavior and we heard about the, the the medication the person who had to store their shotguns elsewhere because they didn't feel safe having them in the house and and people who just moved jobs to get away from what was happening I've got to say I think Steve Count the leader of the conservative group does have questions to answer did he know what was going on? And if he did, why didn't he put a stop to it? And if he didn't know, why on earth not? So I'd really like to know the answer to that. And John Elworthy said in the interview that he thought that Steve Count should resign. How do you see that playing out? Well, he's still leader of the Conservative group. And as far as I know, that's likely to continue for, for the time being. But as I say, I really do think he's got questions to answer. And and. I can't imagine what those answers would be, which would lead to him continuing to be a good leader of that group. It's Cam's Politics on Cambridge 105 Radio, and we've got another story about a conflict of interest, but this time in a parish council. We'll get to that in a tick. Cambridge 105 Radio. So imagine our surprise when an email arrived at the radio station recently pointing us to a YouTube video called dysfunctional councils. On it, together with some hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil emojis, was a short audio recording. Here it is. 
you need to question whether you want to be on it. Yeah, here, here. Get out. If you don't like it, get out. You should have left ages ago. Let me just play that again. You need to question whether you want to be on it. Yeah, here, here. Get out. If you don't like it, get out. You should have left ages ago. Now, there are other videos on YouTube as well, posted by someone calling themselves Crozier Citizen Journalist, and all critical of Bassingbourne Cumneysworth Parish Council. When we contacted Crozier Citizen Journalist and asked him or her for a comment, we were directed to Brian Baldwin, who lives in Neesworth. So I went to see him. Brian, let's start by having some background to these YouTube videos. Do you know who posted them? No. So where did the recording come from? I don't know that either. And is it your view that that's either the clerk or the chairman of the council telling somebody to shove off? It's a woman's voice. Do we know who it is? Uh, I think I know who it is, but it's hard to... Uh... But you wouldn't like to say? I don't think it's appropriate, but I guess. <laughs> OK. So what is the problem then with Bassingbourne come these with council from your perspective you're not a member of the council but you are a local resident what, what's the problem the problem is it's become very factionalized which is a historic thing from uh, about 2019 when a particular councillor now was co-opted and uh, managed to persuade the council then to restructure and reorganize how they operate and then two or three months later new parish clerk was obtained and she took over things like uh, answering complaints, speaking for the council. I've put complaints in which I know were not presented to the council for the council to discuss. Give me an idea what kind of complaints these were. I don't want you to go into the detail, but were they about, you know, planning issues or what? No, they were about uh, the preparation of the preset budget for the uh, village to pay. And uh, I was actually complaining about the fact that this particular budget did not include income, which made the precept amount that uh, went forward to the council higher than it should have been because the income should have been taken off the expenditure, which is all they had, which would have made it cheaper. And then the council were receiving income that hadn't been allocated or accounted for in the budget. I don't know where it was going. And when you asked these questions, you were faced with a, a brick wall? It, uh, ostensibly, I, th I think it was like a brick wall. I got an answer from the parish clerk, taking my points in, in one at a time and, and saying either noted, noted, most of them was noted, which means nothing, I subsequently so found out. Filed. Um, and there was one that said... Uh, that not to include the uh, income was within guidelines, which it patently wasn't. It's been established as it wasn't. And the next year, they did include the income. So by definition, there was something happening there. Now, I have approached both the leader of the council and the parish clerk to talk to us. Neither of them have replied. If they do, obviously, then we'll try and include their views on this. Do you think they are inefficient or corrupt or both? What, what motives would you ascribe to them? I think whether it's incompetence, I don't know. It's hard for me to judge being just a resident and not actually... I go to a lot of the meetings, but I don't know what actually happens in discussions. 
I have complained about the chair in terms of her lack of control of the parish clerk, but and I did that to the South Cam's District Council monitoring officer, and it came back as no case to answer. There's, there's no real evidence of corruption. There is. There has been discussion on the grass cutting contract. That, uh, yeah. Well, tell me more about that because that's mentioned in one of these videos, isn't it? That there was a a contract opened for tender, yeah. and the person who might have been considered the favourite because they'd been doing it successfully for some years had a bid that was the cheapest, but then that wasn't even put forward. No, well, it, how could it, that happen? It was. Sorry, it was put forward, but the clerk, when she took on the role suggested, I believe, that uh, she should present tenders anonymously as opposed to people knowing who the tender was from. She did this and she presented three tenders, A, B and C. Uh, she made a recommendation for one particular contractor, which was around about 4,000, 4,000 plus more than it transpired was the incumbent contractor. I'm given to understand, I didn't attend the meeting, but I'm given to understand that she said that uh, the current contractor was not capable of doing the work, and that was part of her recommendation. And the person who did win the contract is a close friend of a relative? The clerk has said that the person who runs the contractor is a friend of her son, which means that to me, that she must have known him for some time. That sounds prima facie like a conflict of interest. Uh, I'm not putting words into your mouth here. But at the the least, it's a conflict of interest, which um, I think should have been declared, but who am I? I'm only a resident. So here we are sitting in uh, in Neesworth, part of the parish. What do you want to happen next? I mean, I, I imagine they don't... Welcome your appearances at the council. What what do you want them to do to put this right? I want them to operate properly and in a, on a common sense level properly and talk to people. I've got to a stage where I wrote to uh, my MP at quite some length and copied Robert Jenrick. Oh, this is Anthony Brown, the MP for Anthony, South County. Anthony Brown, and I also copied the um, Robert Jenrick. Because I was absolutely flabbergasted when I found out that I had no recourse whatsoever. I thought I'd have recourse to the local government ombudsman. But I found out that I had no recourse to them. There's nobody else for me to go to. So there's no checks and balances on the parish council as far as you can see? As far as I'm concerned, there is none. To actually get information about the grass-cutting contract, I had to go to the information commissioner's office. But again, I don't see why I should have to do that and why it's not... I've actually subsequently said, why is it not published on the website? And uh, it hasn't been published, but I've not been given a reason. All I want is for the council to be open, transparent. I want them to consult villagers and the community. I want for them to let everybody know what is happening and actually include the people... Because if we need to spend a lot of money on a particular project, then I believe that the village should be have a presentation to them and say this is going to cost £50,000, £80,000, whatever. And then the people can say, well, fine. And if they say fine, then they can expect a, an increase in the precept. And it really frustrates me that the council seem to not want to share these things. 
That's Brian Baldwin talking to Cambridge 105 Radio. And, of course, we did approach the clerk and the chair of Bassingbourne Companies with Parish Council, but they didn't want to be interviewed. However, they have sent us a statement, which I can read to you. It says... Without prior knowledge of the content of the interview, the Parish Council would comment that it has sought legal advice on certain issues and is working with the Data Protection Officer from the National Association of Local Councils on other issues. It's also awaiting further guidance from the Information Commissioner's Office regarding the YouTube recording which was obtained at an in-camera meeting. Verbally, I should add that the parish clerk, Val Tucky, told me that they've made repeated attempts to get the YouTube videos taken down, but at the time of recording, they're still there. We get the here, we line up, we've been in a sunlit Can't beat a bit of Taylor Swift. My tears ricochet on Cambridge 105 Radio. We're in the middle of CAMS politics for March. And last month we talked about business and how the Chambers of Commerce were thinking about the coming year. Uh, In a minute we're going to talk about how the TUC might be reacting. Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. Cambridge 105 Radio. So, as I was saying, last week we had Vicar Nels here from the Cambridgeshire Chambers of Commerce talking about business and Brexit and the depression, recession, if there is one, and inflation and all that kind of stuff. So I thought it would be interesting to get a more left-of-centre view. And I've got James Ude with me now. Now, James, you're not strictly the TUC or the Trades District. We are the Cambridge and District affiliate of the TUC. So we are the body that represents local branches of all those TUC-affiliated trade union branches in the Cambridge and district area. The district is quite important because a lot of our members are working out in villages. Certainly a lot of our committee don't live within the city, so it represents probably the south of the county, shall we say. Let's talk about that membership thing then, because I think for a lot of people, the TUC means factories it means manufacturing industries that's a very old idea of what the TUC does and what unions do give us an idea of the range of occupations yeah so I mean probably the largest affiliated branch currently with Cambridge Trades Council is the Unison branch at Adam Brooks Hospital which has probably I would have thought about 3,000 members both nurses support staff you're talking about cleaners you're also talking about porters and also administrative staff we're also represented in big tech like arm for instance in the unite gems sector and We have the University of Cambridge Unite branch, which represents people that are non-academic staff that work for the university. We also have the National Education Union, uh, some of the big six forms, obviously also the secondary schools and the primary schools and also my predecessor because I should just say that I've only I was only elected as chair a couple of weeks ago is the regional secretary of UCU in further education at CRC. So the, <clears throat> the reason it's worth doing that exhaustive list is to again cancel out a bit of prejudice which is oh the unions they're just the working class well that's a lot of middle class occupations you just talked about. 
I would just add we are very much working class as well because one of the larger Unite branches is, of course, the Marshalls branch, which covers a wide sector of both manufacturing and engineering skills and also those that are in apprenticeships, for instance. And I think with the cost of living and particularly Cambridge being a very expensive place to live, people, I think, should be joining unions and certainly that's going to be part of our ongoing campaign while I am chair while my comrades also within Cambridge Trades Council seek better pay increases for workers across the city, across sectors. Do you think that the employers, after the generations we've had post-Thatcher, are even going to care what you think? Well, I think, um, obviously, in the city, I think uh, there is in certain sectors a shortage of labour there is a cost of living crisis and many people that have gone through the experience with furlough have wanted the safety that union recognition and union membership gives them and i think employers will have to listen to workers who are unionized in future and i don't think we're going back on that anytime soon. When I was talking to Vic last week from the Chambers of Commerce, he was hinting that a lot of people who had been on the leave side of the Brexit debate were beginning to have a buyer's lament. Where do you, and I don't mean the Labour Party, I mean you and the TUC, where do you stand at the moment on Brexit? Well, um, in terms of Brexit as the local trades council, Several unions were firmly in support of staying within the union. Some had a more nuanced, neutral approach. And I think what we want to do now is make it work. I'm no supporter of Boris Johnson. I'm no supporter of this hard Brexit. But I don't think that, you know, as much as some others in this city may think otherwise, I don't think the clock can or particularly democratically, should be turned back. And I think we should make it work. I will give my personal opinion as well. I am an old school Benite and I didn't support staying in the European Union. Well, that's, uh, it brings me to my last question, really, which is what are, what's the state of fraternal relations between yourselves and the Labour Party? If we're right to characterise the Labour Party as moving slightly to the right, where are you on that journey? I get on very well with all my comrades that are doing a brilliant job, particularly our new leader, Anna Smith, of running Cambridge City Council. I was very sad that Lewis felt the need to step down, but he'd done you know, a great job over, I think it was seven or eight years. Elisa, I'm pleased to see her, is a very good friend of mine. And I would say, although I think the trade union movement certainly wants Labour to be talking more about workers' rights, the ability of trade unions to make those pay claims in not just in line, but above inflation, both in the private and the public sector, because we have to remember, it is now 11 years of Conservative government in which particularly people in the public sector have been squeezed. And so when people are offered 
say, pay increases of 1% or 1.5% in either the private or the public sector, I do think it's right that unions like Unison, like my own Unite, smaller unions that are traditionally more militant but have actually delivered for their members very well. I think Labour really does need to see where their bread is buttered. But I suppose the obvious question is, do I support Keir Starmer as Labour leader? At the present, yes, I do. And I do hope he becomes Prime Minister under a future Labour government, because I think only a Labour government can deliver on what the people's priorities are. And last time we had the people's priorities as Brexit, and that may have been the case for some people, but now they are seeing the cost of living going up. They are seeing the pay in their pockets buying less and less. And I just think, you know, we need a united Labour Party and it needs both the left and the right for a bird to fly. So I would implore anyone listening that wherever they are in the Labour Party, we do need to unite. And I know I won't make myself particularly popular necessarily with everyone by saying that. But at the moment, I think the Labour Party is the only vehicle we have alongside a very strong trade union movement to make real headway in terms of people's priorities. James Ewed from the uh, Cambridge Trades Council, thank you very much for joining us on Cam's Politics. You'll like this. There is power in a fire tree, power in the life, power in the hand of the worker. It all amounts to nothing if together we don't stand. Now the lessons of the past will learn with workers' blood The strikes of losses we must pay for In the cities and the farmlands, the trenches full of mud Always always been the bosses' way, sir The union forever defending our rights Down with the black leg workers unite With our brothers and our sisters Together we will stand There's power in a union And I long for the morning that they realise Brutality and unjust laws cannot defeat us We'll defend the workers who cannot organise And the bosses send their lackeys out to cheat us Money speaks for money, the devil for his own What a comfort to the widow, a light to the child. There's power in a union. The union forever. Our rights down with the black leg of workers unite with our brothers and our sisters together we will stand. There is power in a union. There is power in a Bragg, of course, and I was pleased to read this week that he's playing the Cambridge Folk Festival again this year. 
uh, a late edition. Uh, always good to see Sir William on stage in Cambridge. It's Cam's politics. Phil Rogers, what did you make of um, James Ude and the uh, TUC view? Well, it's interesting that um, after many years of uh, declining union membership, um, numbers have actually been going up in the last few years. And um, clearly unions can be very important, not only in um, negotiating uh, wage disputes and so forth, but also in helping out individual members who have uh, issues with their employer. And I, I certainly know a number of people who've, uh, who've benefited from that. And um, here in Cambridge at the moment, we have uh, obviously the university dispute going on. And uh, you may have seen people with banners on King's Parade and uh, picket lines being assembled and, and so forth uh, recently. So uh, I think the, the unions are very much a continuing force in uh, local and national politics. So on episode one of this series last month, we were talking about Mill Road and the Greater Cambridge Partnerships uh, consultation. Well, I went to a webinar about it and um, it was very interesting because chaps came on the screen and they were chaps uh, to tell us all about the potential uh, ideas that are circulating and I thought we ought to talk to somebody at the very top of the Greater Cambridge Partnership about what this consultation is actually all about and who better than Elisa Moschini who is at the very top of the (laughs) Greater Cambridge uh, Partnership just remind us in a sentence what the GCP is so the Greater Cambridge Partnership it was set up to deliver infrastructure to uh, support the growth of Greater Cambridge. And how do you come to be in charge of it? And the, It's the union of three main partners, and they are reflected in the three members of the executive board, which I chair. One partner is Cambridgeshire County Council, which I Of which I you're the deputy. Of which I'm the deputy leader, indeed. The Cambridge City Council is the second partner, and it has a member on the board, uh, Councillor Dave Bajant at the moment. And uh, South Cambridgeshire District Council we also has a member on the board, which is my vice chair, um, Councillor Neil Goff. So, Mill Road. Mill Road, indeed. Now, I've lived in and around Cambridge since the middle 70s, and I can't remember a time when Mill Road wasn't an issue. Um, so the, the idea that we're going to solve it soon may be a bit far-fetched. The interesting thing for me about the webinar was lots of proposals or suggestions were floated, but the guests, the residents on the call, were very sceptical. The tone of it was, well, you're saying that, but you don't mean it because you've already made your minds up. So talk to that, if you would. Is that true? No, it's not true. And I have, I mean, I have heard that feedback before. And unfortunately, um, I think a lot of it is actually due to the unfortunate history which this project has. There was a scheme that was put together and rushed through using... um, an executive, like an emergency order, which basically meant that restrictions on traffic were put in before they were consulted on. This is something residents will never forgive you for. And because this was done, it is now quite difficult to start the process from scratch and try and convince people that there's a blank slate again. It is something I take quite seriously. I absolutely, I mean, we're spending quite a lot of public money on getting this right. I'm not countenancing a suggestion that we're doing it for theatre. It's extremely seriously considered as something that we need to build from the bottom up. So we met on this webinar a consultant, and as we all know, consultants just hold up a mirror and tell you what you're already thinking. So I'll dismiss him for a second. And we heard from one of the council officers, and 
what we didn't hear from, of course, was one of the elected representatives who's going to make this decision. And there was some scepticism amongst the other uh, participants, I think, about whether it's actually the consultant and the officers who will decide and you guys will just rubber stamp it or whether you will take a genuine interest. Yeah, no, I mean, this isn't I mean, this isn't quite how it works in the sense that the officers, and I can only guess at who exactly might have been. So the GCP is... Whatever people might tell you, they're very good at professionally running consultations. They do that as part of their core because all the schemes that we put out, which are of various types, but they basically all come down to transport. So busways, some of them not controversial, some of them controversial. (laughs) Um, Corridors into Cambridge, which is a word Cambridge residents don't like, but it's all part of facilitating access public transport access to the city. All of these schemes, they need to be consulted on very solidly because they're A, very expensive and B, very impactful. And therefore, you have to have the expertise to run these consultations professionally. This is something politicians can't do. We're the decision makers, but we're not the technicians. So what's the most important thing about Mill Road? Is it the fact that it's the heartbeat of an area of great interest and affection or is it the fact that it's actually an arterial highway from the east it's both which is why it's yeah. so difficult <laughs> um it's you're paid to answer the difficult questions of Lisa. course <laughs> and it's why we're doing the process the way we are because it's one of the few bridges over the railway which is why it's a sort of key I wouldn't describe it as arterial, or perhaps it would be arterial if it wasn't so bloody narrow, um, <laughs> obviously, but it's a key way of getting over that railway. But at the same time, uniquely perhaps among those roads that have a bridge over the railway, it's a destination in itself. Mm-hmm. It's a high street and a bus route, and it has a lot of footfall. This created a huge problem during the pandemic because it was still crowded. It was one of those places that it was impossible to get in, not crowded, because those shops were being used. People were queuing outside for them, creating crowds, which at the time were a big public health no-no, which prompted, I suppose, the emergency action that was taken. Unfortunately, sometimes you make those choices which in the immediate term seem like a good idea, and then you live with the consequences when crowds on the pavements were no longer a public health hazard. You are left with having to deal with it. Well, it's not difficult for people to find out how to contribute to this consultation. Just Google GCP Mill Road. It's all there. Are you going to pay any attention to what ordinary people say? Absolutely. What the officers need to do for me is to compile the findings into a narrative that I can understand in terms of what is the most supported kind of thing that people say. And at this point, we're not looking for a completed scheme. That's for part two of the consultation. At this point, we're looking for the big things that we need to address. So it's what people really value most. What people really value, that's a challenge in itself, because when you do these consultations, people are drawn to telling you all the problems there are. Mm. They're not really drawn to telling you what they like. It's a problem with everything, you know, when you do any kind of consultation. You you put it out saying we're planning to, you know, stick a couple of double yellow lines here. What you get is objections. You never get people writing in and saying, yes, actually, that's a really good idea. People don't think they want to do that. On the webinar that I was on, one of the first slides that came up 
uh, which was just a little cartoon of a street, clearly meant to be Mill Road, and it had, on the street, it had a taxi, a bicycle and a pedestrian. And one of the people on the call said, oh, I see you've already made up your mind you're banning cars. Um... <laughs> Yeah, well, I it's there's a lot of sensitivities around that. No, we haven't made up our mind that we're going to ban cars. Well, Elisa Moschini, thank you so much for coming to Cambridge 105 Radio. It's been and a pleasure. appearing on Cambridge Politics for the second show in a row. You're almost a regular now. Um, I'm looking for the hat-trick. You'll have to do something controversial. Oh, uh, <laughs> please don't ask me that. Thank you very much indeed, Elisa. Well, Phil Rogers, what would you do with Mill Road? Well, I do feel a little bit sorry for the GCP, I've got to say. Um, There is no solution that everybody is going to be happy with. But it is good to see a lot more consultation happening this time. Uh, As Elisa said, the history is, uh, uh, well, there's a lot of it and and some of it isn't very happy. And the sort of sudden imposition of the the closure last time with no consultation at all clearly put the backs up of a significant uh, section of the community there. While pleasing another very significant section of the community and and frankly good luck to them in negotiating the way through to finding a solution that's uh, not going to have people demonstrating against it too loudly so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens and it's one, quite a long road. One other little footnote to Cam's politics this month did you see that um, the former mayor is back 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 he's going to form a, some sort of consultancy to look at business opportunities in the east of England and he's going to launch this at an event with the other great successful Tory in the local area, Matt Hancock. I have to say this news had passed me by, but um, uh, fascinating development. <laughs> I think there's something about it in the Cambridge Indy. Uh, Phil Rogers, thank you. Thanks also this month to Noah Keat, who is our researcher. Uh, this has been Cam's Politics for March. We'll be back right at the beginning of April. See you next month. <laughs>